Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Never Strays Far is brought to you by Chapter 3 and the Roadbook Cycling's Definitive Almanac. You can buy the very few remaining 2018 and 2019 first editions as a special bundle price for just £55 by visiting www.theroadbook.co.uk. And if you enter the discount code CLASSIC, we'll throw in a free musette and they're very beautiful, worth £7.50 with every order. And Chapter 3, the brand I created, founded in 2015, and it's uh, something that I've uh, always wanted to do, is bring to cycling a, a more creative individual style that isn't just based on one discipline, but multi-disciplines. And we're on the journey, and I hope you'll join us. Go to chapter3.com and see what we've got. Uh, there are lots of stories, there's products, there's uh, everything we hope that will help you find your next chapter in cycling. One word, Remco. He's making a mockery of cycling, isn't he? I mean, it's just, uh, it's just so, I don't know. We've never seen anything. We, I mean, we've said, we say this, we've been saying it a few of the last few years when we see like a Peter Sag and then a Matteo van der Poel and then maybe Wout van Aert, but then we've, and a Pogacar, but then we've never seen anything like a Remco. I mean, this is like Eddie Merckx stuff. It's there's crazy. a phrase that there's a phrase that I've never quite understood in 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 British English, which is different gravy. I don't know why people yeah. say different gravy, but Remco is different gravy, isn't he? He's he's not only making a mockery of cycling, he's also making a mockery of podcasting, <laughs> or at least our podcast. Yeah. Every other podcast, I'm sure, I... absolutely noted his victory <laughs> at the Tour of Poland. But I, last time we oh, podded, yeah. David, I, we were both so obsessed with Milan San Remo because it was the only bike race that we'd watched. We kind of forgot the yeah. rest of the world existed and uh, hadn't even bothered to check the news. <laughs> I know. It wasn't until about 11 o'clock that evening you just sent, sent me a message and just going, Jesus Christ, look at this. <laughs> and I just, it was the results of Poland. And I was like, oh, my God, what is that? I mean, it's just... And, and it's, it keeps doing it. It keeps doing I mean, well, that was a 51K... 51 Ks from the finish line he went, wasn't it? And it's on the Queen stage against, well, we know World Tour riders and the best cyclists in the world. And he just just rode away from them. Two minutes nearly. Yeah, 148 to Jakob Fulsang. Two minutes and 22 yeah. seconds to Simon Yates and uh, Rafa Maika and then a whole bunch of other riders. I mean, it's... Um, and. You know, at the finish line, he unfolded the uh, Fabio Jakobsen, his teammate's number, and and held that aloft, which is a fine gesture, but a pre-planned gesture. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. that morning, that morning he woke up and he would have said to the the Swaniers, "Where's Fa- give me one of Fabio's numbers? I'm going to put that in my back yeah. pocket because I know precisely what's going to be happening in five hours' time." You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as you say, that's that is a pre-planned. He, I mean, I guess he knew he was going to attack. And it's yeah. the fact I tell you, I read what I read in the um the kind of the post-race interview remarks from the press conference. He said he just felt so good that he went and then he just rode within himself. And it was like, you what? You attacked 50Ks and finished the Queen stage, dropping the best riders in the world, and you just found your rhythm and rode within yourself. I mean, <laughs> this, is, uh, <laughs> this is amazing. And as you said, I mean, he did say also in that thing that the, the moment he kind of had that number, it gave him that, that extra boost you know, and it's, you know, hats off to him. He's already a very um, aggressive rider. And he didn't see, he, I, and the fact he said he, he attacked then, he rode within himself. He wasn't riding emotionally. He rode rationally. Mm-hmm. And even at the finish line, he still looked composed when he brought that number out. There, you know, and it's, so this is a kid who's, he's got his head screwed on. I mean, that could have been a kind of a grandiose just kind of show. Actually, he was doing it right. He was, he was doing it to win. And mm. he wasn't doing it just as a kind of a, a tribute race. And, and I think that says a lot about him as well. Uh, oh, completely. I, I was actually trying to half-heartedly go back through some uh, recent historical race results, David, to, to try and figure out. You see, in, uh, this is another thing we've spoken about. It's in modern racing, you actually very, very rarely on Queen stages see anything like that kind of time gap. You know, nowadays, you know, you can have the biggest attack in the world and come away with 22 seconds. If you're lucky, that's that's how it feels at the moment. So anything you know approaching two minutes seems completely anomalous. Um, and I was thinking, I've got one. Okay, I was just well. Uh, sorry, you raising your hand in the air. That's why I paused slightly because I wasn't sure whether you needed to interrupt. But oh, no, you've then, got then, one. Then it froze. I, I, well, I yeah. was thinking. I was thinking. Uh, well, I looked at um, 2018 Giro. Is that what you're thinking? And Froome. Uh, actually, that, I was actually thinking more recently than that. Pogacar okay. in the final stage of the Volta last year. Was the that big day? That's when he rode himself onto the podium and won the stage, and he won by like a minute forty-five, attacking oh, on the well penultimate. Remembered. Moment. Yeah, well remembered, and that was yeah. that was insane because again, that was just a young rider who just rode away from all the best in the world, and not yeah. only, and again, did it in a, in a way that was wasn't just a, a, a show of force; it was an absolute rational kind of race move that moved him onto the podium and won the stage. So yeah, so that's that's the most recent one I can think of, and again, uh, but you're right that's a very new ph- phenomenon. And apart from Chris Froome, as you said, in the 2018 Giro, it's not the yeah. sort of thing we see very often. And that was done as a, that was a, what, what in American sports would be called a Hail Mary. Exactly. Was I was going to say very, very different circumstances because mm. to execute what, you know, y- yes, because Chris Froome, in, to some extent, that only happened because of his place, his lowly place on the general classification. To some extent, it, it kind of froze the response. To some extent. To mm. some extent. Um, but but Avonapool and Pogacar did it off the front, so to speak, didn't they? And that's the that's the slight difference there. So yeah, really really astonishing. And, yeah, and, and it's and I think it's it's also if we think about it, it's those young riders that are coming in with a new style of racing. It's it's it's, it's, it's fearlessness and it's it's bringing something new and fresh to the sport. And it's probably because they are uh, they they're a blank slate, you know. So they're not scared of anything. The the, the, the sport is changing has been changing fundamentally over the last decade or so 
And I guess this is now the absolute, this is that definitive change where actually the racing is starting to, to morph into something else, what it, what it can be. And it's almost going a bit back to old school. And I think for many years, we, we just considered those sort of moves impossible. So nobody would try them. And granted, they probably were. Whereas I think in this modern sport, this sort of racing is a, it's a new style of racing that is it's a renaissance, if you like. And we commented on um, uh, Avonapool's kind of ascending, the ascending quality of his GC wins. And he's at it again. I think last time we spoke, we said, look at, look at the trajectory. You know, you go from San Juan to Borgos. This is all in this season. Borgos, prestigious race. Well, Tour of Poland is a world, is a world tour race. And that's his first world tour GC, isn't it? So um, more to come from him. Uh, his next, I understand his next race is Lombardia. And uh, Matt Rendell has replaced me in Italy, David. I'm, I'm now back in London to, well, we'll talk about the Dauphiné soon, um, to commentate with you on the Dauphiné tomorrow. Um, but uh, Matt Rendell's got, gone off to do well, Grand Piemonte and Lombardia for the, the world feed. And it, he just sent me a message yesterday saying, oh, well, I might as well just record my commentary already for Lombardia because I know precisely how that's going to unfold. I mean, if Avonapool, it, it's tailor-made for him, really. I mean, true, yeah. Vincenzo Nibili is at the race. Um, and one or two other yeah. players. But, but I, I, I honestly, at the moment, can't really manufacture in my mind any other scenario other than Avonapool takes his first monument at the weekend. Completely. And it's, and it's that idea where, you know, it's more, when's he going to attack? And just how far, <laughs> how far out does he want to go? And that's what's going to be interesting. Uh, but yeah, it's, I can't wait. I'm, I'm excited to watch that. And it's, it's 20 years old. As I saw a tweet you did, it's, it's something perfect about 2020 and this 20 year old who's just coming through and, and decimating the peloton. It's, uh, yeah. it's great. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, just pick you up on a little quote that just came out of your mouth, David. I'm excited to watch that. You're watching so much bike racing. I've never. So yesterday, or was it yesterday or the day before yesterday? Day before yesterday, wasn't it? The, the, the yeah. extraordinary thing happened that you watched a bike race that I didn't on the telly, I, which I think I is like in recent years a bit of a first because I'll watch any old crap and you've got a busy life <laughs> and I haven't. Um, but but um, <laughs> you watch you watch the final stage was it of the Tour de La and um, and it kind of blew your mind a bit again. What happened? Yeah, that was. I turned it on with about thirty forty k's to go, and Ineos were on the front. Um, and it played out that they'd been on the front for a long time uh, on an attempt to, to put the peloton under pressure uh, because going for Egan Bernal for the win, who was lying second overall behind Roglic of Jumbo Visma. But Jumbo Visma were just sitting there ominously behind them. And it was like a role reversal. It was almost kind of Ineos were riding a bit movie star-esque in the sense they were just losing riders. It, it, it was almost like they were just slowly dissolving and disappearing off the front and Jumbo Visma was just slowly rising up through them to the point where you got to I mean 10 k's in the finish Chris Froome was doing this huge turn and then just did a peel off there was still like 25 riders and was almost weaving in the road and from that point on Jumbo Visma just came to the front and there was very little that anybody else could do and it was it was shocking actually just to see that that role reversal in those two teams and it was a cakewalk for Jumbo Visma and that's going to be quite a concern, I think, for Ineos. Well, it's um, it sets up this Dauphiné uh, huge... Well, I mean, it really kind of whets the appetite for this race now because it really is properly... If we imagined this scenario when um, <clears throat> we went into lockdown and everyone was thinking about the, the Tour de France and the Dauphiné and the big races to come and thinking, well, wh- I wonder how much you know, progress Jumbo-Visma will have made and how much of a genuine threat they can be to Ineos. 
<laughs> it's properly game on now, isn't it? And uh, the next five days of racing, I think, will will go a long way towards uh, answering a few questions or, or, or posing even greater questions. Um, the Dauphiné, yeah. yeah, go on. Sorry, David. No, no, I was just about to say, yeah, I think you're right. I, 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 I'm just going to Dauphiné. We would often say that there's still time, but I, I just, is, this next week is going to be make or break for Ineos because the, the, the show of form uh, after last week, they need to show some form. Uh, and they've just got to hope that perhaps it was a an error in training or, or build up to Tour de Lan because there's a big step up for them to make to to, to contend with Jumbo Visma based off Tour de Lan. But as you say, that's what makes this week so important. All right. Well, um, we're in, still in separate countries. Uh, in in the interest of full disclosure, I should probably confess that for the commentary at the Dauphiné. Uh, we will be in different countries. You've been frantically unpacking some special broadcast kit and trying to assemble it at your desk in Girona. Um, <laughs> I'll be commentating with you, but from some remote studios in London, and we're just going to hope that it works. Um, but I've uh, been starting now to turn my attention to Dauphiné, David. I've been starting to make my copious notes. And also, I've had a little look at the route. Um, do please uh, enjoy this uh, rather wonderful musical accompaniment that uh, I have put uh, to these words. This exceptionally weird 2020 Dauphiné, which is tremendously inexplicably known as the Criterium du Dauphiné, even though it isn't a criterion race, and only has a tenuous link to the dolphin depicted on the coat of the 12th century Count Guigues IV of Alban, who ruled this mountainous neck of the woods spanning the modern-day Isère, Drôme and Hautalpe, and who gave his name to the Grenoble-based local newspaper the Dauphiné Libéré, or the Emancipated Dolphin, which called the race into existence in 1947 and then sponsored it until 2009, has been titled for this year Un Concentré de Montagne, or Mountain Squash. Instead of eight days, there are only five, Instead of a prologue or a time trial or a sprinty stage, there is only climbing. Instead of June, it's August. You know the score by now, the new normal, the phrase we're all increasingly sick of. Except this bit of the new normal is going to be fun. It starts in Clermont-Ferrand, twinned with Aberdeen, a town it has absolutely nothing in common with, buried in the heart of the Puy de Dôme. Heading eastwards from the Massif Centrale towards the Alps, stage one is the longest and one of the least climby of the five climby days, although there are still 3,600 metres of ascent. There's a punchy double uphill finish into Saint-Christ-en-Jarez to deal with. Two Cat 4s, although not especially steep ones, in the final 11k, which are all pretty much uphill. This race may well be one of the biggest things ever to have turned up in Saint-Christ-en-Jarez, a tiny hillside town in the Loire with a population of under 2,000 souls and an ongoing hosepipe ban due to the canicule, or heatwave, still gripping France. Stage 2 is only 135k and has just under 3,000 metres of climbing, most of which are backloaded towards the Chartreuse Mountains and into the 17.5km summit finish to the Dauphiné Regular, the Or Catégorie Col de Porte, a perennial favourite of the race, if not of Bernardino's, who crashed there in 1977 while in the race lead, which I'm sure he was absolutely fine about. It's even been used 13 times in the Tour de France, albeit never as a finish line, and not since 1998. Its average gradient is a deceptive 6.2%, because there's a downhill bit early on, and more than 5 kilometres, which are in excess of 10%. The Col de Port is not named after Ritchie Port, but might be, 
at least temporarily, by the headline writers at L'Equipe if the little Tasmanian can confirm the promising form he's shown so far since lockdown. Then, it's a more regular flat, 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 up, 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 down, 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 and up, up, up type of stage the following day, 157 kilometres from the almost certainly mispronounced Coron into the Savoie and over the mighty Col de la Madeleine, the second or category climb of the race, and onto the third consecutive summit finish. This time, the Cat 1 Saint-Martin de Belleville, which has nothing to do with any triplets, but interestingly is the setting for the Marquis de Sade's 100 Days of Sodom, a book written by Sade while he was imprisoned in the Bastille on a continuous 12-metre-long roll of paper, made up of individual small pieces of paper smuggled into the prison and glued together. When the Bastille was stormed and looted on July the 14th, 1789, at the beginning of the French Revolution, Saad believed the work was lost forever and later wrote that he wept tears of blood over its loss. I have Wikipedia to thank for that entire gem. Anyway, it's another day of torture, with 3,430 metres of climbing. A fourth day and a fourth climb to the line, and this time there's 4,660 metres of climbing to be done from Eugène to Megève, Monte de l'Altiport, which is a 7.4 kilometre climb at an average gradient of 4.7%. More of a drag to the line then, really. But it comes after the ascent of the steep Col de Pont-Bois and the monstrous Monte de Bizanne, and a bunch of other climbs too. Megève is one of those towns that features over and over at the tour, often as a stage start, like last year, sometimes, as in 2016, as a finish. It was here that Chris Froome won the mountain time trial at the 2016 Tour de France. It's also a foodie's paradise and is, according to their own tourist board website, enriched by an out-of-the-ordinary history and heritage, the village has a soul that goes well beyond the image that we may already have of this unique venue. Which, if you haven't already got an image of the venue, is probably a fairly modest claim. Then, on Sunday, it all comes to an end at Megève, which by now you will have an image of, and will understand just how far beyond that image its soul extends. The race seems fatally drawn back there, as Megève is both the start and the finish of Stage 5, making it in effect a triple whammy to compare with last year's Brussels to Brussels, followed by a Brussels start at the Tour de France. It's the same finish line once more, with the long drag uphill to the Altipor, which is, if you didn't know, a small airstrip for light aircraft or helicopters or Steve Cummings, a bit like the one in Monde. Once again, the profile contains over 4,000 metres of climbing, including the double header of the Col de Rome and straight onto the Col de la Colombière, which feature early enough in the race for someone to do something astonishingly audacious and snatch the race from defeat on the final day from over 100 kilometres out. So that's where Froome attacks then. And I think it's so important that Chris Froome attacks and shows himself in that final stage because, as we said, it's, this is going to be the make-or-break race. And for Chris Froome, if he's going to get that place in the Tour de France, which he's trying so hard, it's this week is, is going to be that moment and it's going to be really interesting. And I hope we do see something special from him. I was... I mean... I was kind of thinking about the Froome situation, David, and, and I think in a, in a funny way, Team Ineos's surprising and collective weakness, you'd have to say, in the, in the face of Jumbo Visma, Froome included. I mean, I know, as you described you know, earlier, he's been doing an awful lot of work on the front and kind of emptying the, emptying the tank for Egan Bernal, and yet you might have expected him to go a little bit longer into the climb if he was really, really on good form. But their collective weakness, um, I wonder whether that brings Froome, weirdly, 
back into contention a little bit as a uh, well, you ca- we now can't yeah. necessarily leave him out because we, we do know a few things about Chris Froome. We know that he's won the Tour de France four times. We know that he rides deeper and deeper into Grand Tours and gets stronger and stronger often. And I wonder whether he's actually more likely rather than less likely now. I don't know. Would you see what I'm getting at? I can't really articulate what I mean, but there's something in there. Yeah, yeah, I, I 100% agree. I mean, I think he's... He's proven, and and yes, he's not far from his best, and we we know that. But and yet, still, it goes to show his pedigree that he can uh, he can ride that group down to twenty riders, uh, even in this kind of lacking of form. And yeah, I think if you're going to have to, if they're on the f- fence and they've got three or four riders who they can't really choose between, well, Chris Froome, you would end up choosing him because you, as you say, he's proven. And I think he's showing that he's willing to to help the team, and it's likely that he will get stronger and stronger as the race goes on. So yeah, I think you would want to kind of give him give him that chance. And so yeah, I think the the level playing field within Team Ineos at the moment is actually playing in his favour massively. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Egan Bernal's form, is there? That's that's worth noting. Yeah, I mean, Egan Bernal's looking great. Uh, he's always... The funny thing with Egan Bernal is even on that final stage in Tour de Lan, which he looked... He didn't look good, but often he doesn't look that good. He kind of rides quite a big gear. Compa- uh, he's, he's, he was moving around the group quite a lot. He went down to the back, and yet he was the one that made the big attack at the end, and Roglic went with him. The two finished ahead of everybody else, although Roglic did distance him. And I, that's that's... Good, I think, in the sense that also Egan Bernal, we know as well, he gets better and better as the race goes on and the harder and harder the stages. So I, I'd say Bernal's in the right place. Roglic is looking terrifying, but there's still quite a long way to go until that that, that third week of the tour. So and, and maybe that play, if perhaps Ineos are a bit on the back foot, and this could also play into their hands because now Jumbo Visma are going to go in so confident, so excited, and be dominant, that might be a case where Ineos just sit on their hands for two weeks and put all the pressure on Jumbo Visma and then play it all in the final week. So it is, it's kind of, it's exciting. And it's, it's a new thing. We haven't seen this happen before in the last decade, probably, where we're seeing the dominant team, GC team of this generation of bike racing is for the first time on the back foot. So, um, just to sort of look, look, go down this extraordinary... I mean, it's always a very, very strong start list, isn't it, the Delphine? But it feels even stronger than usual this year. Um, with a few exceptions, Remco Evenepoel being a notable exception, pretty much everybody who matters is here. Um, uh, very few absentees to, 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 to note. Um, interestingly, uh, Jakob Fulsang is one of them. Fulsang um, and Astana, I think, are, are, have got w- one significant eye on, on victory at the Giro d'Italia and are probably focusing their efforts more on that race uh, going there with their new sensation Alexander Vlasov and his best support in the shape of uh, Jakob Fulsang and um, Tahada and they've got Miguel Angel Lopez at this race but um, Jumbo Visma they've just got stronger David they are taking <laughs> they're taking to the Dauphiné Dumoulin Hessing Kreisweg and Roglic um, who were doing the damage in the mountains but they've been joined by Sepp Kuss Tony Martin and Wout van Aert. Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> I, that, yeah, I'd forgotten they had all those guys. That's, uh, yeah, yeah that's, um, that's the dream team, isn't it? It pretty much looks like that, doesn't it? Um, so it's mm. exceptional. I mean, Roglic, 
Roglic's, uh, you know, this isn't a flash in the pan. This isn't uh, the, his development has been so steady over over the last few years. I was just looking back at the last eleven stage races, um, going back to twenty eighteen, the spring of twenty eighteen that he has entered. Um, he has won eight of them, eight of them, wow. and that includes three Grand Tours, obviously. And he's finished on the podium of the um, the uh, Giro as well. So of the last eleven, so he's won the Basque Country, Romandie, Slovenia, finished fourth on the Tour de France, third on the Tour of Britain. These are consecutive races. I'm not leaving any out. Then in 2019, he won the UAE Tour. He won Terreno Adriatico. He won Romandie again. He finished in third place at the Giro and won the Vuelta. And his first stage race in 2020, Tour de la, he's won it. Jeez. You know, yeah, that's, I, um, I mean, it's that's it's it's actually more than Froome-esque, that kind of domination. You know, it, it's yeah. he hasn't got the long, long years of backing it up and mm. doing it repeatedly, and he's never won the Tour de France. But that's exceptionally consistent, isn't it? Yeah, that is a that's that's pretty rare. You know, and it, it does go to show the pedigree. And it's a bit like we were saying with Remco. There's a certain ascending spiral to those results as well. And the, and the way he's he's racing them as well, we've seen that. I think we've seen him get more confident. We've seen the team grow around him as well. So we really are at... I think we're seeing something that's that he, he's on the way to what, I guess, in his head, in the team's head, is his first Tour de France win. And it's been... That trajectory's been heading in that direction for the last two years. Yeah. Um, how do we want to do this, David? There's so many names here to conjure with. Do you want to pick a few out or, or, or shall I sort of kick off and you can you know chip in with a you can, with, with, you a, with a few yeah i mean it. yeah no you, you you pull it all up i mean i just think riders on form very familiar names who are on form rather than dwelling on, on riders who are perhaps less on form um who have caught the eye i think it's worth noting that i don't think naira quintana is far off where he was before lockdown where he seemed to be ripping everyone's heads off you remember and um in the, in the early season. I think he's pretty close to that kind of form, actually. And he's got a very good team alongside him uh, at the Dauphiné, which, incidentally, is a race he's never finished any better than ninth on, curiously. Hmm. I was surprised by yeah, that. And has, uh, has never won a stage. Um, and the other rider who I'm really impressed with is, is so far is Richie Port. I think it's yeah. a long time. Uh, I think we have to go back quite a few years before, since we've seen Richie Port ride this well. He seems motivated, um, unencumbered he seems to be and he seems to be riding with real grit actually and purpose and just looks super strong I think yeah he does I mean I think and this uh, I think this is going to be such an important couple of months for Richie Port and perhaps it's playing into his hands because often we see him at the start of the year come flying in then he starts to peter out whereas this year I mean he's, he's had this big gap so it's almost like we're starting uh, in January again when he's flying and he's probably only got about a two-month window where he's really good. So this is a, a, an amazing opportunity for him to, to do something, uh, judging on his past, kind of the precedent of how his form lasts. Yeah, and he's, I mean, he's a rider who I, I, I understand has been fairly close in recent years to kind of packing it in and calling it a day and letting his contract run out and then turning his back on the sport, maybe. Um, not been the happiest soul. He's had terrible misfortune in recent editions of the Tour de France I think it was consecutive crashes um but I I you know we all understand that he'll be moving to Ineos and that won't be in a leadership role that'll be in the, in the role of a super mountain domestique I'm sure of that and I'm wondering whether he's just sort of mentally flicked a switch now and gone okay well you know that's that's great that's my pension plan secured and that will be a last couple of years of high earning and in a high status team but this is my last chance at leadership 
you know, and I might as well throw the kitchen sink at it. He just seems to be, he's one to watch, I think, because uh, he's, he's on a little bit of a reascending spiral, to use your phrase. Um, other riders, so we've got three former winners of the race in Chris Froome, Alejandro Valverde, of course, who's won it twice. Froome has won it three times. And Geraint Thomas, who's also, uh, by his own admission, I think kind of a little bit short of where he needs to be. And is, I think, struggling in the heat a little bit more than other riders at the moment. And it's unrelenting still in France. Um, we've got three, sorry, four riders who finished in second place in previous editions of the of the Dauphiné, including Richie Port, TJ Van Garderen, Adam Yates and Roman Bardet, who, of course, announced or it was confirmed yesterday the announcement that he will be moving to Sunweb and three riders sorry two riders who have finished in third place in previous editions including Dan Martin and Emmanuel Buchmann mm. and yeah yeah they're a, they're a team to watch I think Border Hansgrohe because um, Buchmann let's not forget was very close to the podium in Paris last year without even existing in the bike race yeah, he just wasn't there. True. He ghosted his way to fourth place, um, mm. and they're they're a team who are in really good form, especially their climbers. So they've got Felix Grossschartner uh, in support of Emmanuel Buchmann and Gregor Mühlberger, who won the CBU Tour. Um, I think they're I think they're a really good team, and of course, uh, Peter's there. Peter, Peter's there as well. Bless him. He's doing a bit of... Because there's nothing in this bike race for him. It's one of the rare times Peter Sagan goes to a stage race and there's nothing there for him unless I'm completely getting it wrong. I can't see him winning a stage. I think I think he's just there to find his mountain legs, isn't he? Yeah, he must be. I mean, that's the you're right. That's the only explanation. I mean, you'd never write him off. There are sometimes... If he loses some time, sometimes breakaways go and we've seen him win stages in his early career in the Tour of Switzerland mountain stages. So... But I, I agree. I think he's just there to, to just bash himself and get ready for the tour. I tell you, a team that I think is a little bit of a dark horse team is Bahrain McLaren with uh, Mikael Lander, Bilbao, Tunes. You know, it's, it's a pretty, as a sort of, I'd say, sort of second list team, second tier team, which is essentially what they are because they haven't got a big leader. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see Lander and Bilbao and see how they're going and Tunes as well because they're all very dominant sort of second tier riders and this is the sort of race which is a rare opportunity for them to do something properly I think well Lander's a phenomenon isn't he on his day it's just his days seem uh, um, they're random yeah it's unreliable you don't know when they're going to come and often when it's too late the Lander days come (laughs) don't they but uh, but, uh, did you see the Movistar documentary on Netflix David no did you watch any of it I was kind of eventually I held off and held off and held off and didn't watch it all through lockdown and then I thought you know what I'm going to watch this and I was really kind of hooked into it and I was very surprised by how all all these things by the way are slightly manufactured and controlled by the team's PR department let's not kid ourselves but I was Mm. I was nonetheless slightly surprised by how willing they were to indulge in sort of washing their dirty laundry in public or at least in Netflix eyes um, yeah. over the course of last year and, and you did get a kind of sense of Lander's of the slight difficulty of having Lander in a team um, he seems yeah. like a well as of just a very unhappy team last year wasn't it Movistar let's be honest <laughs> <laughs> just none of them were talking to each other <laughs> I'll tell you why I'll tell you why wow. it's 
David, I'll tell you why... Well, this will bring us on to Movistar, actually. I'll tell you why it's worth watching. Do you remember when we were commentating on the Vuelta last year and Mark Soler was called back? Oh, yeah, that was... Yeah, yeah. I remember um, that and, and, he, and he properly threw, you know, like wavy yeah. arms and flappy hands and mm. sitting up and, you know, all the histrionics came out. Well, that gets picked over that stage of the Vuelta and mm. far from kind of like putting a lid on it and hushing it up and trying to move on and saying, oh, it was fine, nothing really, you know. Pablo Lastras, who's the ex-rider, who's that now one of their DSs, absolutely slates Mark Soler <laughs> in the film. Ah, he just hammers brilliant. him. He hammers him for it. And, um, and then in the same breath says, but next year in 2020, you know, we're building a team around him. <laughs> so, That's brilliant. It's so oh, Movistar. So, yeah. so they, 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 new generation Movistar come to the Dauphiné with Marc Soler, who is a phenomenal rider, I think, and one of the best riders last year, and Enric Mass, who's, of course, enjoyed ah. success at the Vuelta. So those two, it'd be interesting to see who's going the better of those two. And they're supported, of course, in inverted commas, by Alejandro Valverde. And um, perhaps not the strongest Movistar team ever to to come to the Dauphiné but certainly ones to watch um, Julien Alaphilippe reboots nice. goes, goes from goes from Italy to you know now he's in Tour de France mode isn't he and uh, I, don't, I don't know what we can expect from him at the Dauphiné really I don't imagine we'll see the full Begbie psychosis unfolding on the on the slopes of the Dauphiné climbs but, but he'll be probably I just I don't know I, I, I what think- do you think I think just the fact that everyone's coming in so fresh. I mean, he did a huge ride at Milan San Remo at the weekend. He's obviously on scintillating form. So I, there's no reason why he won't just go nuts. I mean, he's not the type of rider who can hold himself back, is he? So it, he's got nothing really to lose there. I think that's the other thing maybe to take into account of this race is that it is it's so close to the Tour de France. It's Whereas normally you've got a three-week gap. Uh, I think a lot of riders are just going to be turning themselves inside out indifferent to what the results is because and that could see some pretty aggressive um just bonkers racing as people go try to go as deep as they can to get that final push before they they go into the taper before the tour de france and ala philippe in that sense could just be dropping bombs <laughs> another another dangerous team david um with a kind of triptych of Colombian talent is EF Education First they've got the they've got the dependability of Uran who I think I understand is going very well himself um, but they've got the kind of free electron brilliance of both Danny Martinez and perhaps more significantly Sergio Iguita and they'll be I mean either of those two on their day terrifying propositions for everybody else you know you don't let them go <laughs> you've got to watch them like hawks no. those two um, yeah that so that'll be good to see Adam Yates, I'd like to see Adam Yates kind of rip it to pieces. You know, there's, there's, I mean, as you said, there's just so many riders here and that are kind of have potential to, I, and it's very rare that we see the two principal Tour de France teams with their full lineups essentially racing against each other in this final race. So you're going to have that, the, the Jumbo Visma, Ineos kind of battle royale going on, which is very big picture stuff. But there are so many excellent riders and teams also here. Who will be? Who? I, yeah, I think it's going to be great, and I'm really looking forward to it. We haven't even mentioned Pogaccia. No, I was going to come to that. Well, yeah. So I've had my eye on UAE Team Emirates in every race that I've seen so far because I think they're just. I think they've really picked up and kicked on as an, as a team, don't you? I, and I think they've yeah. got kind of they've got a purpose and a spirit about them. Oh, I couldn't believe it the other day. Um, 
Valerio Conti was mm. was in the on the Tour de Lain, was in the GC group with Roglic and and Bernal, almost to the top of that climb, wasn't he? The, on the penultimate climb. Now Conti is. I mean, that's the first time I've seen anything. I know he's a good climber, but he's suddenly turned himself into a GC kind of climber. I've never seen anything yeah. like that from him before. And that, I think, is uh, emblematic of a team that have just really stepped on and stepped up. And obviously, it's kind of spreading around. So, F- Davide Formolo, uh, where did that come from? His second place at Strade Bianchi. I think it was his debut on the race. You know, And he's absolutely flying as well. He comes to the Dauphiné, and so too does... Uh, Tadej Pogacar. So, yeah, they're uh, they're a really interesting team to watch. A bit like mm. Border Hanskara and DF Education First. I think they're in that second tier, maybe, of teams, but they can do some damage on this race, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think you're right about the UAE. The fact it's sort of finally finding that spirit, whereas before it did look just like a, a kind of... Uh, I don't even know how to describe them because there was no way to describe them. So it's kind of... It, they've gone from that invisible weird team to actually having a sort of a, a spirit and that's now showing with the results well they've just still got a terrible jersey haven't they that's why oh, yeah i mean it just they just don't it's not a winning jersey is it it's just a it's horrible <laughs> just it's a nightmare yeah. jersey davide formula's the national champion of italy and you really wouldn't know that he was by the way uh mm. the way they've designed the jersey um we should also mention Briefly, I think we're kind of winding our way to the end of the start list, but it is so ridiculously replete with talent. But we should definitely mention Bardet, who initially said that he was going to be targeting the Giro this year and has switched and changed his mind and comes to the Dauphiné and will go to the Tour de France. His last hurrah in the colours of AG to Ala Mondial. Um, I, I don't know what to expect. from. Well, I kind of do know what to expect from him. Probably not a huge amount in this company, but we'll see. Um, but I think more significantly, let's watch Thibaut Pino now, because he he wasn't he was one of the big names for the tour who wasn't at the Tour de Lain, and um, although I think he was at Occitanie, wasn't he? But he wasn't at the Tour de Lain for he wasn't part of that big Jumbo uh, Ineos showdown at the Tour de Lain. Um, but I'm sure he'll be in the thick of this. At least I, I hope he will be. Yep, and that's, I that's agree. Kinda, yeah, if you've got an you, you no, agree. I, yeah. I agree. <laughs> you agree. Done. <laughs> You're yeah. done here. Our work is done, except to say that there are 25 former stage winners of the Dauphiné on this start list, and uh, and bring it on. Just about the just about the route, David. Though, what what about five consecutive summit finishes? I mean, all, all right, maybe stage one is hardly a summit finish, but it is an uphill finish. You know, it's the best part of 10 kilometers of climbing up to the line. Yeah, I, I mean it's it, it's mad. I, I mean, Dauphin, the Dauphiné normally is a, a kind of it's um, it's a baby Tour de France, uh, and I guess this year it, it's kind of it's, it's following that trend, uh, only in extremis, if you like. Because yeah, I've never seen a, a stage race like this, and especially a stage race of this caliber. So it's going to be it, it's perfect for preparation for the Tour de France. Um, but at the same time, it's it's renowned as being a brutal race, the Dauphiné. You know, it's it is always hard. Sprinters almost, as you pointed out, as Peter Sagan, sprinters almost never come to the race just because it is uh, it is such a mountain, mountainy, hilly, hard, hot, brutal race, and and they've just turned it up to eleven this year. So it's going to be um it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, and on behalf of everyone at Never Strays Far, good luck to Andre Greipel, who takes his place <laughs> in the start list <laughs> of the Dauphiné oh. this year. 
David, I'm looking forward to, this will be our first time back in harness since uh, it all got abandoned at Paris Nice on March the 15th. So bring it on and we'll try and keep podding every day, shall we? Maybe? We'll yeah, see how it goes. That's the plan. We can day do job that. first, though. We'll be commentating on ITV for the highlights tomorrow, won't we? So um, see you then. Yeah.